You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Hello and welcome back to Watching Brief for the week, or rather the weeks, of the 22nd and now the 29th of November. Uh, We've been a touch delayed compared to our schedule due to... Well, waiting on uh, on responses from key individuals uh, with regards to this week's topic. Uh, I'm joined, as ever, by my amazing co-host, Mr Andy Brockman. And uh, this week, uh, there's no joke in terms of who he is and what he is or how he is, because the topic of this week's Watching Brief is a very serious one. It's one that we've been building up to now for uh, weeks, months, and in some ways, thematically, I think, years. And it, it it builds on specifically a couple of recent watching briefs where we've discussed, for example, what we call the quality of archaeology in this country. That is to say, the quality of being an archaeologist, the experiential nature of being an archaeologist uh, in, in the sector. Uh, but also as well, a, a, a watching brief from a, a, a few episodes ago where we asked the question, does archaeology need friends and allies or does it actually need critical friends, particularly when it comes to the media and interactions with, with the broader world, for example, environmental campaigning and uh, and government in particular. And so with these things in mind, today's Watching Brief is examining, uh, I suppose, competence and I suppose professionalism in the leadership of UK archaeology. It's asking questions, and crucially asking questions, as uh, as critical friends. So with that in mind, I'm going to hand over now to Andy to uh, to get us going. Hello, everyone. Yeah, this is a companion piece, if you like, to a big read investigation that is about to be published on the Pipeline website. Mm. It has its origins in events in the world of UK higher education and archaeology and higher education over the course of this year, really, 2021. Um, And it looks at the interaction between a number of different bodies. Uh, Established bodies, like the Council for British Archaeology, University Archaeology UK, which looks at um, after academic archaeology departments uh, and represents them, and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists in particular, um, and their relationships with two campaigning bodies, Dig for Archaeology and the Campaign to Save British Archaeology, which was an independent campaign which was started in the summer. Mm. Um, and it was the reaction to that campaign which really set us off to look at, look at this particular story. Because on the 28th of August, uh, the uh, director of the Campaign to Save British Archaeology Chris Whitwood appeared on the uh, digital channel GB News uh, in an interview with the presenter Neil Oliver. Uh, that provoked a 
quite severe pushback from parts of archaeological Twitter along the lines of what was this uh, person doing representing archaeology on what is seen as a right of centre news channel, which is not popular in terms of its uh, worldview with a lot of UK archaeologists. And by the way, why was he representing himself as uh, saving British archaeology when he's not even an archaeologist? Mm. Um, now... Well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we, we'll, we'll come back to that, won't we? We'll come back to that. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. In the, cor- in, in the, cor- in the course of, the, uh, of what follows. Mm. Um, but we start asking questions about, okay, what was this campaign? How has it come about? Why has it come about? Because we were also hearing from other sources that there was some uh, questioning of the amount of support that, for example... Uh, threatened archaeology departments were getting from the central bodies like CIFA, like the CBA, um, and even from uh, a camp- what was supposed to be a campaigning body for archaeology. Mm. So we started asking some questions, and really what follows in the rest of the watching brief today is what we've discovered. Now, the story begins back in January when the then Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, made an announcement that the government was cutting back on higher level, what's called C1 funding for university archaeology departments. That's the funding that enables things like lab work and field work to go ahead, the things that are more expensive. Um, That money was going to be withdrawn uh, 50% straight away and then more in future because the government, uh, as the announcement at the time went, no longer considered archaeology a strategically important subject. No, no. Uh, That is in spite of the fact that the Home Office treats archaeology as a shortage profession in terms of visas for people coming in from outside of Great Britain and and, uh, the North of Ireland. Mm. So there appeared to be a bit of a disconnect there anyway. Uh, Then, as the months went on, uh, it became clear that a number of archaeology departments were under threat. Uh, The University of Chester, which we'll hear more about in in due course, academic posts and support posts were under threat of compulsory redundancy. Mm. Uh, The University of Worcester course was under threat of uh, complete cancellation with the loss of all the academic jobs and uh, the threat to the um, current students and including research students who might not even have the staff there to complete the courses that they signed up for. And then the event that really I think shook the UK archaeology world to its roots, which was the announcement that Sheffield University, which has an archaeology department that's 50 years old and is regarded as world leading, or certainly has been regarded as world leading, it's incredibly influential, very successful, and particularly in fields like zoo archaeology uh, and, and lab-based work, um, that that department was under threat of possibly of total closure, certainly of what's basically an evisceration. Mm. Um, yes. And... These were, these were announcements that were being made on financial grounds mm. by the university managements. Mm. Now, incidentally, all, all of these stories are stories that we've covered during the course of this year, uh, including, for example, the Department for Education uh, threatening to cut uh, funding, this kind of thing. We, we covered this in Watching Brief. We'll include links to those particular episodes below, but also obviously you can find them in the playlist. Uh, and crucially, uh, this week's link of the week is uh, in reference to a planned rally that's coming this week, which is on, uh, past the ongoing fallout at Sheffield and the response by archaeologists and academics to to those decisions. So, uh, so yeah, it, this has been... This is this in broadly speaking, this has been the big bubble of stories that that, that have dominated, in, in particular this year in archaeology. 
That's right. Now, what we're going to look at now for the rest of the show is how those incidents, those threats, interacted with the world of British archaeology, and particularly the management and representative bodies in British archaeology, and how satisfactory or not that interaction was. Hmm. And if things went wrong, why they might have gone wrong and how they might have gone wrong. Now, as you watch this, I need to make absolutely clear on behalf of both the pipeline and of watching brief, we're not endorsing any of the organisations that we mentioned. And we're certainly not endorsing either Dig for Archaeology or the campaign to save British archaeology. This is a neutral investigation into what happened and we're publishing it in the pipeline and discussing it here because we think it raises important issues that archaeologists need to address. So with that in mind, um, we'll go back to really the spring of 2021 when the uh, University of Chester was initially under threat of compulsory redundance among its archaeology academics and other academics in the humanities and other other departments it has to be said this is not just an issue around archaeology uh, although that's our principal focus um, one of the academics who was most closely involved in the fight back against those cuts and against those redundancies is a well-known archaeologist called professor howard williams and we um talked to howard earlier And this is what he had to say about the state of archaeology and the threats to archaeology as he saw them in the spring of 2021, early summer of 2021. And his argument that what the sector was facing at the time was an unprecedented, a perfect storm, really, of threats coming over the horizon. This is what Howard said. I have been... I did my PhD and then was teaching as an, a lecturer in archaeology in the first instance, then senior lecturer and then professor later on at another institution. But I've been teaching since 1999. So that's, um, I don't know how, how many years, you know, 23 years or so teaching in academic archaeology. And there have been instances where departments have been, you hear rumours, you hear direct evidence from people's mouths. A lot of it's behind the scenes. So we don't always get a clear sense, but you do get a sense of when cuts are happening and when closures are happening are really exceptional news, you know? Um, so the, the small department I first joined it, it, you know, university HE sector in was Trinity College Carmarthen, which had at its height in the early 90s, about six members of staff. But when I joined, it had three. After I left, um, it was down to two, then one, then nothing. So a small, slow decline of a relatively small unit. And then we had Newport in 2005. We had a massive catastrophic cut at Birmingham in 2012. So these are once, you know, these are not common events. So there's no way you can characterize uh, my own experience. Obviously, I was threatened with at risk of redundancy in my own uh, university in April of this year. And therefore, I started being more intensely aware because my job was on the line. Um, But then when during that period when I was at risk Sheffield also announced it was closing not simply cutting for us we were looking at losing one or two posts perhaps and we ended up losing one person to early retirement and we're okay now um the union fought in its good fight and we fought a good fight but when we heard that Sheffield was actually planning to close its long-running department this is you know anybody that was reticent about joining and being vocal in support of Chester should have been absolutely any any doubts should have been blown away at that very moment that this was a 
crisis moment for UK HE archaeology provision. There's no dispute. There's no qualifier there. You know, you can say Sheffield has had its ups and downs. Every archaeology department has its ups and downs. You can say, well, there's been a longer story of Sheffield's troubles. You can, you can victim blame in whatever way you like. But at the end of the day, this was a catastrophic moment of a world-renowned department announcing its closure. And, and, then uh, yeah. uh, 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 and certainly much of the archaeological world responded to yes. that closure. Accurately. There was a flurry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there, there was a, a, a flurry of activity on social media, a massively successful petition that was started by uh, one of the students at Sheffield, Liam Hand. But how do you think the representative bodies in the sector, like the Council for British Archaeology, Chartered Institute for Archaeologists, and particularly University Archaeology UK, how did, how did they respond to those threats uh, in, okay. your, in your experience? In my experience, and it is a very particular experience because I was literally at risk myself, I found it was varied. Um, we wrote to a number of these organisations requesting support. I wrote on behalf of my colleagues to write to our Vice-Chancellor, and many of them did respond. Some were quick off the mark and wrote fantastic pieces that made the case um, in our defence. Um, others were slower and perhaps were busy and looking to see how things unfolded but when Sheffield uh, the news of Sheffield happened they also wrote in so I think all of these organizations did us at Sheffield at Chester a, a great service and I think there was a lot of media attention they did us proud um, in terms of joining the chorus of this has got to stop and and writing very specific as we requested we didn't do an open call for for help because we wanted the right voices in the right way to write in to our, our management our senior management and and they all not everyone responded but a number of them that you've mentioned responded and wrote fantastic letters from their own perspective so from my perspective i felt well supported and i was actually overblown overwhelmed sorry overwhelmed by the massive support from amateurs from professionals, you know, academics and so on. But I would say that there was um, reluctance from, from some quarters to see the, she the Chester, you know, threat of a few jobs being lost as anything serious. And I did feel a degree of frustration within the academics sector itself. Um, um, for, there was a sense that, well, oh dear, how sad, never mind. Um, now, I can't put a finger on that and I don't want to sort of name names, but there was a a sense of silence from many quarters, you know, which, which only th was thrown into sharp relief with the noise from many other academic colleagues and from professionals, commercial, museum, governmental, normally people who would stay quiet, were vocal. <laughs> right. So, so far, so good, I suppose. Uh, archaeologists, particularly in the academic realm, felt as though there was something of a crisis, although some didn't want to call it a crisis. And actually, these representative bodies were responding. Uh, the system works, I suppose. Uh, was, was anything else required? I think the problem came in terms of follow-up, because although the Chester redundancies were largely withdrawn, in, in fact, in the end, uh, the department got away with one voluntary redundancy when the many more compulsory redundancies and redundancies had originally been threatened. Mm. Um, by the early summer, early to middle summer, um, Worcester was certainly under threat and Sheffield was under extreme threat. And 
there was a sense, I think, that something more was required uh, because other things were going on in the archaeological world. The government was proposing, for example, a planning bill which, as it was being presented at the time, would almost certainly have meant a cutting back of two things. One is a local voice in the planning process altogether, mm. um, which has impacts on things like placemaking and so on, which archaeologists these days are very much involved in. Mm. The idea that uh, local heritage adds to a sense of identity and worth to, to the places people live. Uh, and the other one um, is that uh, they would row back on the environmental checks, including environmental checks that would be required before planning permission was granted for a new development. Mm. Um, so, the, so for example, developer-funded developer funded archaeology, there might be less of it and it might come either earlier in the process or later in the process when it was much less effective and much less comprehensive. And the idea was it was something to be got rid of as quickly as possible because mm. it was an inconvenience to developers. Mm. Um, now, um, that and a number of other things that we go into in the article were going on alongside the academic issues. So you, you have a general sense of a sector feeling under threat. Um, Dig for Archaeology was a response to that. Um, it was initially set up uh, by Dr. Chloe Duckworth of Newcastle University, who I know is a good friend of Archaeosoup. Um, and and um, people might be familiar for her role as a lead presenter on the Great British Dig on the... Uh, on television at the moment mm. um and also uh david connolly the director of the british archaeological jobs resource which is a private body but a quite an influential one in terms of um advocating for particularly again professional archaeologists in the developer funded sector mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um the uh, now our understanding is that when the idea for dig for archaeology was mooted um there were discussions had, put it no stronger than that, with leading bodies in the sector, including the CBA, Council for British Archaeology, and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists, and the Federation for Archaeological Managers and Employers, which represents the large contracting units who do most of the developer-funded work. Mm. And um, to put it at mildly, suggestions were made that Dig for Archaeology didn't campaign outside of the already existing campaigns of CIFA, CBA, FAME, and that in fact uh, it certainly didn't campaign independently and its role was better suited to being that of basically a PR operation saying good things about archaeology and trying to get public coverage, media coverage of good things about archaeology, which mm -hmm. it had some success in doing. There were articles in The Guardian. There was an appearance, for example, on Radio 4's Westminster Hour mm -hmm. um, where, where it was the, the issue was discussed with politicians. So there, you know, it, it, it did have some success as a campaign. But the suggestion is it wasn't the strong grassroots campaign that maybe some people thought it either was going to be or should have been right at the beginning. But in fact, what it is, 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 a, is a mouthpiece for the CBA and FAME and CIFA. So um, it, it's just an additional means of them saying archaeology is wonderful, like motherhood and apple pie. Mm. Um, now, onto this arena, with a sense that maybe the sector isn't doing as much as it could do proactively to campaign using methods like the 
um, mass signature petitions, which, for example, Sheffield have had a huge success with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke to student Liam Hand, uh, who set up their petition, and they were pushing 50,000 signatures. That is five times, more than five times, the number of people who actually work in professional archaeology in the UK. Mm-hmm. So there's a, poten- there's a potential, a, a much wider reach than the existing bodies seem to be wanting to go for. Mm. Um, there's a much wider catchment of people who might want to support archaeology. And into that arena came Chris Whitwood. Now, Chris Whitwood is uh, from, he's based in Yorkshire. He's a trained school teacher. He's a graphic designer. Um, he's a political activist with something called the Yorkshire Party, which advocates for better regional representation and support for, the, for Yorkshire as a region. Regional politics is something that's growing in the UK at the moment, and the Yorkshire Party is a manifestation of that. Um, but also, he says, he's been uh, a lover of archaeology since he was a child. And he brought, in the early summer, his experience as a political activist and a communications person to the idea of something which he called the campaign to save British archaeology. Uh, This was set up to be, strictly speaking, a a single issue operation, which was about advocating for those threatened university departments. Mm, mm. Um, And he set up a website uh, in consultation with a number of professional academic archaeologists, including Professor Williams and others uh, at departments under threat. And the um, department uh, and and, and those academics were advising him on the content of his website and so on. He succeeded in getting a letter into Current Archaeology magazine. He also got coverage in Times Higher Ed, um, coverage on the BBC over the Worcester department, the closure, the threatened closure at the Worcester department, mm-hmm. which uh, and Worcester course, um, and um, he was also talking to people at Sheffield. Mm-hmm. So he was starting to bring together a network, a, a campaigning network to advocate for university archaeology. Mm. And it should be said, um, it should be said in that sense. Then it was that was a civilian uh, deciding to take up the cause of academic archaeology. And having uh, a, 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 having an approach informed by his other experiences and and professional interests. That's right. And to give uh, to give our viewers a flavour of how this came about, um, we asked Professor Williams, Howard Williams, uh, how he came to be involved with Chris Whitwood's campaign to save British archaeology. I got a direct message from Chris saying giving a brief introduction to his background, uh, uh, a social media direct message. Can we, can we, can I share with you some of the things I'm doing? And I said, okay, but you've got to, um, and would you be willing to offer your support? And I said, anyone that's willing to offer support, I'm willing to back. Um, And I didn't say that with an uncritical eye. I said, I'm all, as an academic, I'm always approached by people outside of the profession um, to ask questions that range from, perhaps you know, media inquiries, pseudo-archaeologists, all sorts of interesting characters. I'm not uncritical of who approaches me, but I, I, I did a check with my own sources and, and, and saw his political background. I thought this might be someone worth at least finding out what, what, what he's going to do. 
So I said, yeah, okay, and I'm happy to put my name forward, but I, would, I put the qualifier that I said, like every individual academic, we're all divisive characters, and if my name alone is on the ticket of your campaign, that would only put some of the people off, so make sure you, you get a range of folks you know, joining in. So we had a, a conversations from, I think, 26th of June, various points through July, well, not a lot. I mean, I didn't share a lot of information with him. It was more just, he said, can you see my draft website I'm set up? And I said, yeah, there's a couple of errors though. You know, can I just point these out? But I wasn't sort of, um, you know, behind the scenes orchestrating anything. I just said, yeah, here's a few points. You might want to be aware of this, just a few pointers. And I said to him, everything he did made sense it was independent it was outside of the profession the 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 academic sector sure and that showed in the fact that he didn't know precisely all the details of what goes on but he had he was willing to take advice and he was willing to listen and he was clearly not listening to me uncritically because i was he made it absolutely candid that he would be in touch with a range of other academics and uh and listening to different views probably because he was wanting to ensure that i wasn't giving him just one take on what's going on and I, as, as any canny politician or campaigner would do he was taking multiple sources of advice that was my sense of it so through july i was supporting him 28th of july i think it was he launched his website or thereabouts and by that point he'd already got a piece in um, um, various places in support of the worcester news when the worcester announced it was shutting its archaeology he 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 was on the local um bbc news he'd written into the current archaeology magazine so i thought this had a prom this was a promising archaeology that would complement the broader campaigning um of dig for archaeology on the planning side and on the commercial side and i thought there, there was there was some mileage in this and it didn't do any harm to offer its support and give him a bit of advice but i didn't i can't claim i put a lot of time didn't give chris a lot of time i was busy with so many other things uh but i did give him uh, you know and I, I looked over a few things for him during that month soon after the website went live on the 20th of july i did get a few direct communications um and and i was uh, saying who is this guy isn't he doing what dig for archaeology are doing and I was on the back foot and I thought, hang on, have I missed a trick here? Have I, uh, have, has, is there something about his background or his character that is dodgy? You know, is there something wrong that I've missed? And I've been a bit of a muppet by putting my name on something which, you know, is easily done with goodwill and good faith. And, and it's, it's something dubious about it. And I, I, I had done my checking and I responded and I outlined to those individuals my limited involvement. that I simply was putting a name and image to, um, and a quote, I had written a piece, you know, about my, my perspective on the future of the subject area and how important archaeology is. And I said, that's limited my involvement. And I said, please contact Chris directly. He is the campaigner. If you have any questions, you know, I can't speak for him. I'm not running the website. I'm not doing anything. I'm not a campaigner. I am, I would merely put forward my name, a quote, and gave him a photograph of myself in my office from a few years ago. You know, that was the limit. So I, I did respond positively. I said, well, what's your problem? What, what's your, what, what is the issue here? And they couldn't put a finger on it. And then a couple of them conceded that they'd been approached by others making noise about the campaign. And that's why they're asking me. So it's fair to say that, that some archaeologists appeared to have questions, at the very least, with, with regards to the uh, campaign to save British archaeology, so-called. That's right. Um, the, and and that, the whole thing was brought to a head. Um, by an email um, from 
Professor Chris Gerrard at Durham University, who is the current chair of University Archaeology UK. Mm. Um, this, the context for this is that earlier CBA and CIFA had issued curiously similarly worded statements about dig for archaeology, where they'd welcomed dig for archaeology as a campaign but um, as a campaign to increase media coverage, not, mm. as, not as anything else. Mm. And they'd also made the point that uh, they, a lot of their advocacy takes place behind closed doors, out of sight of the public, yeah. and they can't always talk about it. No. Um, what now happened, it appears, um, we've got uh, documentary evidence to demonstrate this, is that... Professor Gerard of University Archaeology UK and Neil Redfern of the CBA had a conversation. They had a conversation about a month after uh, the Whitwood campaign had started, and certainly they were aware of it, mm. because we know that um, the, a, a, member of the, a member of staff from the CBA reached out to Professor Williams and asked, what is this campaign you're involved in? What do you know about it? And crucially, is it, quotes, legit? Mm. Um, there, there, uh, now, there was, uh, now, pretty much a month went by when, they, when CIFA, CBA could have reached out to Chris Whitwood. We've seen you started this campaign. Um, what are you doing? Can we work together? Can we help? Mm. Or can, how can you help us? Mm. Um, what happened Instead, at the end of August, 26th of August, Neil Redfern of the CBA texted Howard Williams at Chester, who he knew had been in contact with Chris Whitwood and was named on Chris Whitwood's campaign, and said, quote, I'm keen to understand what you know about it, that is, Chris Whitwood's campaign to British archaeology, and this is the critical quote, how legitimate it is. Hmm. Now, at this point... Redfern has known about the campaign for nearly a month, mm. but there's been no attempt to contact Whitwood. Then there appears to have been a conversation between Neil Redfern and Professor Chris Gerrard of Durham University, who is also the current chair of University Archaeology UK, representing academic archaeology departments. Mm -hmm. And Gerrard then wrote an email which was circulated to all of UAUK's members. So potentially that's 32 academic departments and some oh, into three figures of academic archaeologists could have seen this. Mm. And what Gerard wrote was the following, quote, I want to draw your attention to this website and voice some concerns. Now, again, he's voicing concerns. There has been no contact mm. with Chris Whitwood at this point. Mm. So the concerns are based on no contact with, that, with, with the individual who's actually run the campaign. Um, they then link to the campaign website, savearchaeology.co.uk. And then it continues, quote, having just spoken to Neil Redfern at CBA, we want to reassure you that the author has not been in touch with either of us. As far as we know, he has no archeological background. No governance details are, details are provided, and yet, as you will see, donations are being asked for. 
I know he has been in contact with some archaeologists through social media and some of your staff may well be included. Now that was taken as basically warning off academic departments from having anything to do with Chris Whitwood's campaign. Mm. It goes so far as to certainly pass on the innuendo through mentioning the donation button that maybe it's some sort of scam to obtain money. Oh, incidentally, I, now, should, I should say at this point, uh, we have a Patreon. <laughs> That's the point I was about to make. Pretty much every website these days has a, a donation button to, you know, to try and cover mm. costs at the very least. Yeah. It's yeah. not unusual, and it's certainly not a marker of a scam. No. You know, if, you, if, if, if you get the, um, you know, the, the email from the African prince saying there's been a coup and would you look after $6 million for me, mm -hmm. that's probably a scam. Yes. Starting a, web, starting a website to campaign for university archaeology when you, you, you know, you're open about what you're trying to do and you're you know, fully visible on, for example, LinkedIn, mm -hmm. um, that's, chances are that's probably less likely to be a scam. Yeah. I, I'm... I'm, I'm being frivolous here, but you know the, the point is what they they appear to be trying to warn off the rest of the archaeology sector for no good reason than they hadn't reached out to have a discussion with Whitwood, and uh, he wasn't an archaeologist. Yeah, he, and that was he, it. He's not an archaeologist. Now it should be said that at this time, uh, the, the all of these bodies ostensibly were reaching out to the public, asking them to, for example, contact their MP to exactly. support archaeology and to, to hopefully raise a little bit of awareness amongst the public as to the goods that archaeology does and, and continues to do in this country. So is this a case of, we want you to care, but don't care so much as to start campaigning, <laughs> especially if you're not an archaeologist? I, thi I, I think it's more uh, subtle and yet more blatant even than that, because mm. the, the Gerard email concluded with the following observations and i'm quoting again it said while we perceive as being archaeology under threat i feel strongly we must not talk up a quotes crisis right mm. and we need to continue to stress the good things we all do and the contributions that we make and that's what dig for archaeology was being steered towards doing mm. not campaigning but just saying the good saying the good stuff saying the motherhood and apple pie stuff mm. and then Gerard concluded that he, quotes, feared the sector was in danger of providing a fragmented picture of lobbying and advocacy, which in my limited experience will win no arguments at all. Mm. Now, I should say here that uh, we submitted a series of questions to Professor Gerard, to the CBA, near Redfern, and to the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists. Now, of those, um, Professor Gerard and the University uh, of Durham chose not to respond, uh, not to make any comment. Uh, they told us they did not wish to comment. Mm. Um, the CBA said that the email and the conversation with Neil Redfern represented due diligence and that there was nothing um, inappropriate or, or legally reckless about it, that it was, uh, it was, it was simply an attempt to obtain information from people like Professor Williams who've been involved in the campaign and might have been involved in the campaign. CIFA mm. um, went a bit further and a spokesperson for CIFA told us that they were concerned that uh, contacts they built up 
in Westminster, in Whitehall, in Holyrood, at the Welsh Assembly, and other representative and industry bodies and so on, might be put at jeopardy by uh, inappropriate messaging um, and um, alternative contacts. Mm. And that their, their access to, to government couldn't be taken for granted. It appears, therefore, I would suggest, and I, we, we, we suggest in the article, that the archaeological establishment is, would be prepared to um, hobble, at the very least, independent campaigners, rather than have them generate coverage and potentially access to the media and access to, for example, MPs at Westminster, which they can't control the messaging. Mm. Now, now at, at this point, is it worthwhile mentioning the, the, the great sin that apparently was, was done by uh, this civilian campaigner in, in reaching out to a portion of the media that, frankly, I wouldn't reach out to if you paid me. Uh, but unless he did, uh, he appeared on Neil Oliver's uh, show on GB News. And uh, that, that, that's not, that wasn't great. That wasn't a great idea, was it? Especially not for archaeologists. I'm not going to take sides here. What, I'm, what I am going to observe is that uh, what Chris Whitwood told me in writing the article was mm. that uh, he stood by appearing on GB News because, you know, if you're trying to generate media coverage, then you need to talk to audiences that don't necessarily always reflect the audience that would naturally go to you, that would mm. naturally listen to you. Mm. And particularly if that audience, if the audience happens to be, broadly speaking, aligned with the people who are actually in power to make decisions. Mm. And it's certainly the case that GB News, uh, love it or loathe it, and uh, off-camera, personally, I might give you an opinion, um, but G GB News uh, represents a certain part of the media spectrum which is noticed by certain parts of the government in power, the Boris Johnson's Conservative government, and particularly the element that um, likes to play to the so-called culture war. Yeah. So breaking through to that audience and putting forward a message advocating archaeology in universities, which is all Whitfield did. He didn't advocate you know, not pulling down statues or... Mm. You know, uh, 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 being against the proper you know, reassessment of colonial history or anything like that. It was it was about the campaign. Well, he also he also to, he also to his credit didn't fall into any of the the uh, narrative traps that that the now I would say uh, former archaeologist Neil Oliver laid. For example, saying you know are people in this country losing touch with their heritage? Clearly, pushing that that essentially alt right agenda. Uh, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't take that bait. So Neil, no. as much, again, we're not going to go into into the problems with Neil Oliver. He is a problematic person. Uh, but th this is not what happened on that appearance. No, and what did happen uh, following that appearance? Um, and uh, Whitwood does say he was somewhat taken aback by the strength of the pushback that he mm. got from the archaeological social media, mm. uh, which was aggressive. To the extent well, that actually he, which well, well, for, uh, sorry, for, well for for some it was sufficient simply to screen grab 
that he is appearing on on this show and 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 send it to people. That was enough. Yeah. It would, yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, what leaving aside the precise issues of GB News, and again, another leading archaeologist, Raksha Dave, um, mm. po- uh, tweeted that she had also been approached to probably take part in the same show, yeah, and had ter- and eventually turned it down and said she she couldn't has bring herself to appear on GB News, which was absolutely legitimate for her to, to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, other archaeologists, including Alex Hildred of the Mary Rose Museum and the current head of the Mary Rose Museum have also appeared on the Oliver show without the same level of pushback. Mm. So, you know, uh, I, I think you can certainly argue that what we saw here in the case of Chris Whitwood was that aggressive pushback was a case of shooting the messenger. Mm. And it is possible, certainly, that some people took, who, who opposed the idea of an independent campaign led by a non-archaeologist, um, just took the GP news appearance as the green light to you know it was, it was you know, press the green light and go mm. um to the extent that that, that Whitwood took his social media uh his Twitter account private um mm. and but, uh, and in the days that followed uh, both voluntarily uh and to protect people f- um but also having people requesting him to have their details taken down and, and you know endorsements removed um mm. the, the the personal endorsements from his website are now gone mm. Mm. so um and, and then in fact we, we um asked how williams about this too we asked um how he responded to chris whitwood's comment uh, which he made to me in the course of art- writing the the article that the campaign had been as Whitwood put it, uh, torpedoed from within by certain archaeological bodies and certain archaeologists, and why they reacted the way they did. And this is what Professor Williams said. They'd been almost, whether they were aware of it or not, set up to put pressure on me in some way. And I thought, not much about it. I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm new to this campaigning lark. This is the kind of weird thing that happens. People I know from social media would hardly talk to me, rocking up in my DM saying, hi, Howard, what's all this about? And one of them that did that actually went, oh, well, I'll put my name to the campaign now that you've explained that it's good and I understand what you're talking about and I will contact Chris. So one of them did do that and then, sorry, they must have been convinced by talking to Chris, not to me, but they they, they took my lead of talking to Chris and then, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's good news. That does something different from other activities, individual academic department campaigns and then dig for archaeology. I'll, I'll support that. And um, I mean, it's not as if I had to sign up or anything, you know, it's just uh, giving a bit of information and uh, an image. And, and so at that point, I thought nothing of it, really. I thought that's, that's just the way it goes. And then the month went by and then I, I you know, I, I, got a, I got an approach directly for a conversation uh, um, so, uh, about this, this issue. So I, I don't know the motives, but I haven't answered your question. I don't know the motives for this, but I suspect he, he is an outsider. He has political links, therefore, you know, ironically, we want this game, we want to play this game in archaeology, we want to criticise the media, we want to criticise politicians, we want them to listen to us, but we don't want to be associated with them. And I think maybe there is a, perhaps a little bit of childishness in the academic profession and the commercial sector about our relationships with the media and politicians, that we can, we can get away without getting our hands dirty. I mean, so I wonder whether that the idea that, oh, actually, here is someone with political experience, here is someone actually willing to give his time and energies to 
support academic archaeologists what's the what's the what's the catch you know i think that might be the, the starting point and if if then people want to feed that suspicion with more noise then i think it's easy to that people can be easily swayed into thinking there's something dodgy going on when actually i i, I couldn't find anything dodgy going on um so you know it may be just down that i'm a huge mug and naive and there was some big game to swindle me out of millions or to to trick the profession by setting up a campaign um which was then the implication given in uh, communications to me by certain uh, leaders in our field but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't sniff it out, and I certainly couldn't see anything but goodwill going on here after having three months of literally hell in my job, going through a redundancy process where I've had so much love and goodwill from outside. I was more than happy to accept someone thinking this is a serious business, actually believing that archaeology is worth saving and wanting to put a bit of effort into it. Obviously, this is a pretty unhappy story. It's about communications and more than anything, it's about breakdowns in communications mm. and perhaps confusion about what is actually wanting to be communicated. Mm. And I think it's unfortunate, doubly so, because archaeology is still under threat. Now, we're speaking on the eve of industrial action by the University and College Union at Sheffield, um, which is, uh, which is a, uh, an in dispute about the cuts at the archaeology department mm -hmm. um there are rumors swirling around you only have to talk to anybody connected with the university archaeology and there are rumors swirling around about who's next mm -hmm. yes and so we and although there have been a, one or two wins like for example that higher level funding was restored by the government mm -hmm. um the, we we're still in a very febrile very fragile political situation as regards to uh, university, university archaeology in particular and archaeology in general. Mm. Um, we, we did ask uh, Howard Williams how he thought things would play out, having been an observer of this since the beginning, and this is what he said. I think the point would be, when we heard the news that our jobs were safe, thanks to the union's negotiations and our public campaigning, which I, did think, I, did, I think did make a difference, you know, that, the fact that, you know, those watching this who did write in, who signed the petition, it did make a difference. We won. And I think it did, the VC conceded at a number of points, our vice chancellor did concede at least two occasions that she listened to the voices. And I think the voices she listened to included academic archaeologists that wrote in at our request, but also the CBA. So hats off to the, I think there was, you know, they, they made a difference. Now, what, what I would then say, though, is that when I came out of the process, right, when I was free, I was looking at the middle of June, near the, near the second, you know, 18th, 19th of June. I was thinking, right, where's the debrief? Who wants to know what I did and what my colleagues did and what worked? And I talked directly to Sheffield and I talked directly to Worcester, exchanged information, gave my view on what could happen, what they could do, might do, consider doing. But no one else from those organisations got in touch. I felt they'd done their duty, they'd written in. Now we can forget about Chester. We can forget about what they've gone through. We, you know, there, was no, there was no sense that they wanted a debrief from me or my experience of having someone who'd never campaigned properly in a serious way. I thrown in the deep end, did my little bit. And I thought, you know, where's the coordination coming? When, where's, where's the, are they going to talk to me? So 
jumping forward a little later, when I did get someone wanting to talk to me, I thought it was really going to be a, a two-way exchange. They wanted to know what worked, what didn't work, you know, what we can do. And certainly UA UK made very clear they weren't interested in hearing from me. Um, and this is outside of a, nothing to do with the particular issues with Dig for Archaeology and the Safe British Archaeology campaigns. There was no sense they were, there was an interest in learning what was going on at Chester. And none of my colleagues have said they've been approached by UA UK to find out what happened to what, what was our circumstances about. Just simple basic facts. So formally, UA UK have no, had no dialogue with us about what happened at Chester and what we learned from the campaigning at Chester. So as far as I'm concerned, apart from the stuff I've put out privately, you know, on my blog and stuff, no one has asked, no one knows. I'm not a CIFA member. Um, CIFA did write in our support. I'll confirm that point, And I'm very grateful for their support uh, for us at Chester. And I think they do have a valid point about the need to build up long-term relationships and they have that expertise. But um, where is this in terms of public grassroots campaigning? They're talking about behind the scenes advocacy and, and, and you know, long-term put you know influence i mean i maybe i'm just my naivety of understanding campaigning but you know what was happening in 2021 at a time of exceptional change was a profession that is largely fed by graduates from universities and a university sector under threat and i think that all of these bodies have been really just asleep asleep at their desks they they didn't and the, and the very fact i would put back to cifa is i'm not one of your members guys i respect what you're doing i know you've got a difficult job and you've got the expertise in, in this field and i haven't done any of this lobbying but i would put back is well why was i looking on social media 30 days or so into a campaign to save my own job seeing you dish out advice about how to best campaign and you hadn't even been in touch you know it does suggest that they didn't want to know about individual departments plights because i think the narrative was anyone that's already a threat must be asking for it must be already doomed don't worry about us lads we'll keep working behind the scenes for the long game to save the few that survive whatever's coming and i'm afraid that's just not good enough um, i'm afraid that's just absolutely um not saying for just on their own i'm saying the sector i think ha had to have acted quicker and thought through at least some strategy now, maybe Chris Whitwood's campaign wasn't the strategy, but what, 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 what else is there? I haven't seen anything. No one's approached me. And I haven't, I've been looking for an excuse to see something in its, in its stead. And I haven't seen it yet. And we're eight months after the Chester News first broke of us having job cuts, then Sheffield, then Worcester. And I fear, sadly, next year we'll see more. And that's what we should be planning for. <laughs> And where is it being planned? How I actually think it will play out is I think next year will be the telling. Uh, you know, it was this a crisis that we weathered or is it just the beginning of more? And if we get to April next year and more vice chancellors make a decision that archaeology, whether because of political pressure or from individual financial issues, is not for their portfolio, um, where, where is the planning to resist to counter that? Will it be another single letter sent out and then made into an infographic for Twitter or will there be more? And, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it'll be Chester next year because I think our vice chancellor, despite many things I disagree with, I think she listened. 
and I thank those bodies for what they did for us. I, this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying they're without you know many benefits. They they really helped us, and that's the point. They did work to help us, but I think the the what, if if things go downhill next year, we may need more than what was happening this year, and I think we need to plan collectively for it. So again, I'm not sure I have a vision, but I think there are pressures within the wider sector that wants to see cuts would almost like a nice wheat for that wheat from chaff moment to make themselves feel vindicated about their superiority of their courses and their their their, their students um but i th i think a lot of people are going to have to are going to be very worried and it'll lose all confidence in these organizations if they haven't done more than say i'm not happy to go on tv i'm not happy to talk to the media i'm not happy to write more than one letter that'll do we've done our bit thank you good night oh isn't it a shame and I, I, I think that, um, you know, and I must say also as a qualifier, I don't feel personally that it's really CIFA or C, the CBA's or, or a responsibility to sort out HE archaeology provision, but they should be there, you know, supporting UAUK who have on their website claim to be representing us and, and, and pushing the sector forward. And really those bodies together um, need to be doing something And that's where that's what I feel I can. That's all I can say. <laughs> so as we bring this bumper special episode of Watching Brief to an end, uh, just in time for for, for Advent. <laughs> um, but no chocolate with this one, I'm afraid. Uh, just a, just yeah. a bit of a shit show. Um, I suppose what 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 we've presented here is uh, is a question. And that question is about the relationship between uh, academic archaeology, public-facing archaeology, uh, the, the leadership of archaeology and archaeologically related bodies in this country, and the extent to which archaeologists are able to, to accept support and to, to actually accept help where and when it's offered uh, and to look beyond the same answers for solutions uh, at the moment for example a fairly popular phrase in terms of uh, debugging management structures is something called groupthink where you go to the same people for answers and they give you more or less the same answers that you're expecting to get and that means that you feel as though you're doing the right thing but actually sometimes you can end up doing something which is um, <clears throat> well, possibly ill-advised, I suppose, uh, it, it, depending on the scenario. Uh, the question, I suppose, would be, what is archaeology up to? Can archaeology continue in the way that it, that it has been uh, going on this tra trajectory? And uh, how, how can we, through conversation, through examining other sectors, and through, through hopefully reaching out to other groups, improve the situation because i think as you as you quite rightly put it this has not been a happy story uh, and this this certainly was not a pleasant episode to observe unfolding quite so publicly as it did uh, on uh, on social media over that weekend at the end of august um what what's your uh final thoughts on this andy i've got a couple of final thoughts which i'd, I'd like to leave our viewers with mm. um one is a quote from 
uh, Chris Whitwood of the Campaign to Save British Archaeology. Mm. Uh, he told me that at the end of the attempts at dialogue with the CBA, and the CBA claim that they've tried, you know, they're, they're willing to reach out, but he hasn't reached out to them. There was a meeting at the beginning of September, which didn't go well. And again, the details are in the article. Mm. Um, but uh, again, Whitwood told me, quote, I was hoping that the CBA would acknowledge that departments don't close on a regular basis, but it became apparent there was no cooperation to be had because there was no campaign. Mm. Um, so there's an issue there, as Whitwood perceives it, of a lack of cons consistent and coherent campaigning on the part of the CBA and others. And we heard something similar from Professor Williams, who talked about the fact that there was no follow-up from any of the representative bodies once the Chester issue appeared to have been resolved. Mm. There was no... There was, there was no debrief on how, how that success mm. being brought, how, how that success being made to happen and, and what, what factors, you know, how, what can, what can we learn from this? And how can we there's be no, applied there's no, there's no yeah. absolutely, mm. that, that can be applied elsewhere mm. proactively, mm. not wait, not wait for it to, not wait for the, you know, the, the, the avalanche to be almost on top of us, mm. but how to actually, you know, set off the, the, the maroon to set off the avalanche in a controlled way so that we can at least try and deal with the situation uh, not as an emergency, mm. shall we say. Can, can, I ask, sorry, I think, can, I, can I ask you at this point, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just occurred to me, Are, yeah, is what we're looking at here, is this, is this partly born out of the fact that we rely on archaeologists who have other jobs, who ha have other ongoing family and, in, and, and business and professional interests to be dealing with to also take on the very important business of keeping an eye on for example the media keeping an eye on on uh, on government keeping an eye on, on what's being said on social media and therefore actually having that sort of sustained campaign that builds and grows and and and, and builds up a critical mass is actually quite difficult for our sector to sustain is, is that part of the problem here potentially I think it is. And in fact, in an interview on the CIFA website, Rob Lennox of, the CIFA, of CIFA, their advocacy advisor, um, actually said as much. He said, we're a small organisation in a small sector and therefore we do not command the scale and influence of bodies like the National Trust with their um, up to, I think it's now up to 6 million members now. And then he said, uh, we are limited by resources and therefore cannot engage in some of the expensive, expensive methods that big businesses or industries can to obtain access. Mm. Now, yes, that's true to a degree. And you're absolutely right to point out the fact that you know, there aren't big comms operations at CIFA and at CBA and so mm -hmm. on, although mm -hmm. you know, they, they do have people with responsibility for comms. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is, it, 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 it's, shall we say, unambitious. Mm. And I think it's particularly awkward when, when you get somebody with comms skills, like Whitwood, who comes forward and says, you know, I can help mobilize a campaign particularly on the universities because that's what he was interested in campaigning about and it was mm. an, it was an issue that certainly academic archaeologists wanted to campaign about certainly the ones at worcester and at sheffield who were feeling somewhat neglected by then by their representative bodies particularly use university archaeology uk mm -hmm. um so you know th 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 there is an argument that you know by not wanting to let outsiders in even outsiders with skills, 
it's a case of point gun at foot shoot. And, and given that the, we are dealing with organisations who have relatively modest comms uh, provision, or indeed are, are being uh, being handled more or less on a voluntary basis in some cases, I think it's probably worthwhile considering other uh, other campaigning portions of the world and, and, and uh, of our social media space. Uh, when we consider the fact that, for example, uh, Greenpeace doesn't spend its time worrying about Friends of the Earth. It doesn't. It doesn't try to undermine WWF. WWE's wrestling, isn't it? WWF. The uh, the, 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 the the again another related but different approach to similar issues. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's important to to bear that in mind. It is it is factor, but it's not. In in some ways, actually, it means that that maybe a little less attention should be focused on on others. Uh, within the same sector and, and more on what we can all be doing together perhaps absolutely to take that analogy you just picked up um you know greenpeace traditionally campaign uh perhaps a little bit more aggressively a little bit more uh in, in terms of demonstrations you know climbing uh, you know, a climate change campaign climbing the you know the uh, climbing big the outside of big ben and things like that mm. um uh, 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 whereas friends of the earth tend to use more traditional campaigns like research uh, lobbying and, and and so on um you know these days there are things like crowdfunding particularly for particularly for major campaigns mm. or if you want to you know we want to crowdfund for a particular piece of research for mm. example to discover public's opinion on so and so mm. that's perfectly possible but they're not thinking about going down those kind of routes mm. Um, mm. possibly because it might not come up with the answers that they want mm. who knows mm. um but Either way, I, I mean, again, it's a personal opinion, but I think there's a certain lack of ambition, shall we say, in how effective the sector thinks it can be. Um, but I think, it, leaving aside lack of ambition, lack of confidence, call it what you will. And, it, and again, particularly after what's happened this year, the sector is, uh, uh, my, my sense is talking to people, that the sector is feeling pretty demoralised, pretty vulnerable still, even though there have been one or two successes, mm -hmm. like the rest restoration of the, the upper level fund, upper tier funding for universities and so on. Yeah. Um, and I think there are more fundamental issues which are pointed up in a couple of reports which I came across while I was researching this piece. Um, one is called The Future of Archaeology in England, and it was published by the Society of Antiquaries, so uh, one of our most senior expert groups, full of people who are also members of CIFA and CBA. Mm -hmm. um, it was a piece of research that was published in November 2020, and they observed that while there was, quote, well-documented wide public interest and engagement in the past across the, UA, uh, across the, the, the UK, there is worrying evidence of a negative impact of the, quote, silo structure of the archaeology sector that does not prioritise research or encourage innovation and collaboration. And I think mm. that word collaboration is particularly significant there. Mm. And another piece of research, uh, CIFA's five-year review of what it calls the Southport Project in 2017, uh, also noted that across the archaeology sector, collaboration is not the norm. Mm. And the default position for the majority of archaeological projects initiated through the planning process is for research to be tightly scoped within predefined budgets. There remains a disconnect between the cost of archaeological work 
and the value of the research it might generate. And that the value of that research feeds directly back into the academic archaeology because although developer-funded archaeologists do fantastic work recovering you know, gigabytes of data, warehouses full of physical archive of archaeology, they don't do the synthesized research that academic archaeologists do. Mm, mm. And for a long time, people have argued that there is a disconnect between the two fields. Now, people, there are attempts to do that. But I think perhaps at the root of this, a question that has to be asked is, uh, do, do we need a more fundamental review of how academic archaeologists and the developer-funded archaeologists work together and are groups like FAME, Federation of Archaeological Managers and Employers, CIFA, Chartered Institute for Field Archaeologists, which is mostly people in the developer-funded field, mm -hmm. are they concerned that if they went down that route, it would mean restructuring projects and, in the worst case, making projects more expensive. Hmm. And we certainly can't be paying archaeologists more. That is the other issue. Um, you, you say that, you, you say cynically. And I think it's the, the thought, hmm. and, we, and, and we touched on this in, 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 a, in a recent edition of Watching Brief when we looked at paying conditions. Yeah. Um, there are suggestions, put it no more than that, in certain parts of the sector that we need to move away from the idea that a trench face archaeologist on a developer-funded building site or a large government infrastructure project needs to hold a degree. Mm. That you can have an archaeological technician grade mm. um, who is doing the grunt work. It happens in places like Belgium. I've worked in Belgium and there you have effectively archaeological technicians, labourers who do the heavy lifting. Mm. And the people with the degrees are sat on the side of the trench doing, doing the paper recording and writing the reports. Mm. Mm. And um, obviously that has, bearing, uh, has a bearing on the status of archaeologists, uh, the status of archaeology as a profession, and, the state of, uh, 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 and, and what, what kind of archaeologist universities are turning out. It's complicated. Mm. Um, and, and this is really um, a, a story about how almost um, the, the sector has perhaps tripped up on the very first step climbing the stairs to try and deal with this. Mm. Mm. Well, actually, I think you've ended on a, on a far more positive note than, uh, than perhaps you do in, the, in your written article. Uh, for 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 uh, for a hint, uh, I think you mentioned breweries at the end of your written article. Um, but uh, oh, no, no, I, I'm no, no, no. I, I need to jump in there, Mark. Uh, I, I actually quoted somebody who I quoted somebody who um, shall we say that, uh, one of the things we point up in the article is that what one of the worst. Uh, one of the, the worst the worst thing that the sector could face now would be cynicism regarding. You know, its representative bodies among its uh, among the people who are part of it, mm -hmm. among the people who present it to the public, and so on. And that cynicism I represent by a quote from a, uh, an archaeologist who I spoke to in the course of research, mm -hmm. who said, um, 
they're therefore as bad as each other. And this, for me, was another classic example as how, of how, as a sector, we couldn't organise, uh, shall I say, a celebration in a brewery. Exactly, exactly. And, and so I, th I think, yes, we moved, we moved a little bit further beyond that, that sort of sentiment uh, in this Watching Brief uh, uh, yes. episode. Uh, this has been a long one. It will be a long one. Uh, I make no apologies for that. There's been an awful lot to fit in. Uh, but hopefully this has been interesting and useful and hopefully in the context of the tone that we are presenting within this episode, but also previous episodes where we make our, our stance uh, and approach clear, it is clear that once again, we are being critical friends here. Uh, we're not we're not trying to undermine particular organisations and we're certainly not um, uh seeking to create division for the sake of clicks for example that's not that's not the point of this it's it's systems analysis it's observing something and, and thinking and asking rather sorry how could it be improved and looking maybe uh, suggesting that we look elsewhere for for how other people do things how do other people do things to avoid the sort of the sort of flashpoint that we saw at the end of august uh, unfolding before our our uh, slightly shocked eyes um do continue the conversation below, guys, uh, and obviously on Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, please do keep it civil and hopefully keep it uh, constructive, keep it uh, in a tone that, that, that is building and that is growing and learning. And uh, with that in mind, thank you for your time uh, today, Andy. I'm going to bring things to a close because it has been a long one. Uh, until next time, guys, do take care. Bye-bye. This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.